please stand for the reading of God's word from Nehemiah 4. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So he built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, The strength of those who bear their burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon on the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. 
I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon weapon at his right hand. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, G. A lengthy passage, well read. Well, good morning again. I'm Travis. It's good to be with you. I'm the pastor here. Uh, We are continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah. If you're just joining us this week, it's not too late. We're a few weeks in. We're glad to have you along for the ride with us. Uh, Nehemiah is a series that we're focusing on calling A Time to Rebuild. The book itself is about Nehemiah's efforts alongside the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas uh, to rebuild what was the ruined city of Jerusalem. It had been destroyed some 140 years previously as part of God sending his own people, actually, out into exile, as he had told them for centuries that he would if they continued time and again and again to walk farther and farther away from him so that they no longer had any connection with him, that they no longer made any representation to the world about who God is. So it was certainly a time to rebuild the place where people could come and know God personally. For us, too, it's also a time to rebuild. We've been saying after two-plus years of global and societal challenges of all sorts, plus a time of transition here at CTK from our past to our future, it's certainly a time for us to rebuild as well. And so my hope is that we can focus on ways that both we as individuals and as a church together can start to rebuild, that we, like the ancient people of God, might be a refuge, a place where people could come and find rest, could find relationship with God. So last week, we looked at how people actually started to rebuild in chapter 3 and how that actually revealed that it wasn't just them working. It wasn't their own strength, even as our text alludes to. It says, by our own strength, we won't be able to. Chapter 3 was already showing that it was by God's strength and his work in their lives that they, people who had very little experience with construction and building, were able to actually start rebuilding. This week, we're going to look at the first great challenge, really, that comes to this rebuilding effort, which is the angry, threatening opposition to the work that starts to creep up all around Jerusalem. And I want us to focus on what this text teaches us through that about a few things, about anger and about threats to God's rebuilding in our lives and how we handle those going forward. So to do that, I want to look at first a new anger in verses 1 through 5, new challenges in verses 6 to 15, and a new normal in verses 16 to 23. So new anger, challenges, and a new normal. But before we get into that, would you bow your heads and let's pray and ask God to meet us here in this time in his word. Let's pray. Father, it's our great privilege to be able to call on you in prayer, to know that you are still the God who answers prayer, who hears us, who still speaks, though we believe that your your word is closed and sufficient for us in scripture, that you are not done relating to us, 
that you have not abandoned us, you have not given us up to the work of our time and place, but that your word is still living and active and that you speak and move through it. So we ask that you would speak and move through it in our hearts this morning. Whether we have never known you or whether we have known you since the day that we could first remember, would you be present and near us now? Because without you upholding us, what are we? What do we have? But with you, what we have is so, so great. So come and meet us by your power this morning, God, and fill up our hearts. Speak through me that these hearts may hear you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have those open. We'll be going back through the text. If you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or feel free to use a Bible app if you would like. We're going to be starting here in verses 1 and 2, actually, as we look at a new anger. Uh, So this uh, character that we see in the story, Sambalat, is one that we've heard about before, if you've been with us. And before, he was described as sort of irritated. He was frustrated. He was, he was distressed that people were starting to rebuild this place that had been in ruins for so long. But here, his description is a little different. Here, he is described as angry. Verses 1 and 2 would say, now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. That's actually a double description of his anger. It's rare in the original language in the Hebrew that someone would get so many descriptors about how they felt. This is almost an encapsulating, it's sort of surrounding who Sambalat is. This becomes, as we'll talk about in a minute, the entirety of sort of who he is. He's not just angry, this is a furious person. I don't know if any of you all have ever felt that way, that you felt furious, maybe most simply in a car, driving on any road or path that we have, maybe waiting for the tea to come and feeling like it will never come, whatever it might be. We've all felt those moments of fury, and whatever that is, this is maybe just 10 times deeper for Sambalat. He is deeply furious. But what does he do with that anger? He doesn't attack right away. It's interesting. It it seems unusual that he would do what the text says, which is jeer, but what we can really say that is it's another way to say he started mocking the people, and that's pretty clear from the language of the passage, that he starts mocking them. That's what his anger leads him to do. And that might seem surprising or unusual or sort of weak, but in some ways, mockery is actually a very fitting and powerful tool for anger. It's destructive. Uh, As one author, Cornelius Plantinga, describes in his book about sin and how it tears us apart, a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he says, mockery takes aim at our staunchest natural defense, which is our dignity, and it tries to blow it away. Mockery aims to shred human dignity and therefore to ruin its victim in an especially devastating way. And he goes on to give an example of how that actually works out. He says, accordingly, Nazis used mockery to demoralize their victims. At their most demonic, they tried to slay not only the body, but also the spirit. Not only to slay the spirit, but also to corrupt it so that it would recriminate and slay itself. In other words, mockery, the author is helping us see, doesn't just hate you, Mockery wants you to hate you. It wants to tear you down from the inside out 
so that you feel about you the way that the person who is angry with you feels about you. So Sambalat really is attempting to break the people down here, but attempting to do that not from the outside by attacking them, but from the inside, trying to make them feel about themselves the way that he actually feels about them. To make them feel completely and utterly unworthy, like anything they could possibly do, as he talks about here, is just a tiny little pile of stones, as if it's something to be laughed at, something that's, that's embarrassing for them to even try. He wants them to feel utterly unworthy and embarrassed in themselves. And there may be those today, as we seek to rebuild, either as a community or as individuals, as we start to set healthy boundaries for ourselves again, after several years of maybe having no boundaries, no checks on ourselves, as we start to return our hearts to the Lord after periods where we've had no prayer, no reading scripture, no being in connection with him, as we start to change our lives and priorities to rebuild on God as the center and foundation of our world again, there will be people who oppose us and even mock us as we do that. Maybe people very close to us, maybe people within our own family who are angry at what they see and want us to be angry at it too, who want us to hate us, who want us to feel unworthy of whatever that thing might be, to recognize that that is a shameful and embarrassing thing in their eyes and that we should see it the way they see it. Maybe you've gone through some of that. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Maybe to be a Christian in your time and place and our students and our young ones and particularly, I'm sure you feel this acutely at school, that to be someone who calls God someone crucial and special, their savior, to do that draws out mockery. Maybe you have felt like someone that's been treated this way. How do we respond when this happens to us? We might think, if we're good Christians, that we can't get angry. No, 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 no. Anger is not, mm, mm-mm, no, I'm just too blessed to be stressed over here, right? No, mm-mm, that doesn't bother me. No. How does, how does Nehemiah respond? Someone who does seem to know the Lord well. Nehemiah actually gets equally angry. It's not as obvious to us, but he gets equally angry and he's not corrected for it. There's no rebuke of Nehemiah in the passage. What does he say in verses 4 to 5? Look there. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger. This is what we see in the Psalms at times. It's called an imprecatory prayer. That's just a fancy way of saying this is an angry prayer, right? Imprecatory prayers call out for justice and want no mercy. These are the prayers of people who have been wronged. And what I want you to see in in at least a very small way is that it is really okay to be really angry and talk to God about just how angry you are. That's actually fitting and right, And Nehemiah really is angry here. He's asking God to essentially exile these people, to exile these opponents. That's what it means to let their land be plundered, to let them be carried off as captives. That's what happened to Israel 
That's what happened to the very city that Nehemiah is in right now. Exile was brutal. As we talked about a couple weeks earlier, exile meant the city, its walls, any kind of sense of stability and security, any predictability in your life was gone. People were killed. People were taken out of their homes. You were reduced to nothing. You were taken to a land that you didn't know with a language you didn't speak where you had no rights, privileges, anything. Nehemiah knew what it meant to be exiled. He is generations of generations living in exile past this. He knows what it does to people, and he says, I want that to happen to them. Amen. That's an angry prayer, right? He wants that level of pain to come into their lives because of how they are standing up to what God has called them to do. When someone tries to break down, even from just mockery, to have them fall from the inside, to feel broken, to feel unworthy, Nehemiah feels an anger over that. And he prays for exile to happen to them. He is just as angry as they are, but Nehemiah's anger is different. Let's look at how it's a little different. Sambalat's anger defines him. As we already said, he gets a double description. He is angry and greatly enraged. He is someone who is becoming consumed by anger. He is becoming characterized by anger. We could say his character is anger, that he is no longer this person. He is just a ball of anger. He does nothing in this story except get angry and act out of anger. This becomes the new center around which his whole world revolves. He's no longer able to disengage and say, you know what, that bothers me, but I'm not going to let that become the center of my world. He's not able to do that anymore. He is just on a string revolving around this anger. He's mastered by it in many ways so that he has to do what his anger calls him to do. Now, Nehemiah is equally as angry, remember, as Sambalat, but he cries out to God in his anger. He doesn't vent his anger on other people. He vents his anger back out to God. He's not mastered by his anger. He takes his anger back to his master. It gives us a picture of Sambalat being a man who sees himself as having no master of having no one that he has to answer to. Nehemiah's prayer shows him as someone that knows he's someone that has to answer to someone else, that this thing can't become the center and master of his life because he already has that. This has to go there. This has to go back to God. He takes it to one higher up than himself to find help for what is bothering him. Sambalat takes what is bothering him right to the people that bother him and starts to try and oppress them. But by taking his anger somewhere other than people, Nehemiah lets himself be both angry and free. Because anger is not his master. God is his master. And this is a prayer, and this is what Nehemiah wants, but he is acknowledging by praying that at the end of the day, God is going to have the say. God will decide what will happen in these things. Nehemiah can actually be free in that. To take a step 
away. This is how we respond to when people oppose the good things that God calls us to in our lives. Not that we don't get angry, but we take our anger to the right place. We let our anger vent out to God, to someone who can actually handle it. And let's, let's just be honest for a minute. We will get angry in the midst of our attempts to rebuild our lives and our community. It's not just going to be outside. It's going to be in here too. We're going to get angry with each other. We're going to get angry with ourselves. But the invitation and the warning of this passage is to take our anger to the right place. That when someone does something to us that really hurts us, to take that hurt and the anger that comes with it to the right place. That when we just feel angry for reasons that aren't justified, to take that anger to the right place. To take it back to God and let him be the one that deals with it. Not to be our own masters. And I, I am preaching to myself here, right? It is really easy to be and to feel like you are the one who is going to mete out judgment in this, right? Like, you will feel my wrath for the way that you did that to me. It is really hard to do what Nehemiah did, to be angry and to let that anger go to the right place. But that is the way that lets us stay free, Stay a full, multi-dimensional person and not a one-dimensional character that just becomes anger. That's Nehemiah's freedom amidst the anger and the sadness, is to be angry and to not let that control his world. That's the invitation of our text, to, to be angry when opposition comes and to not let it control our world. And yet, knowing that, working towards that, does not mean that the challenges to rebuilding in our lives are going to stop. Scripture knows that life is more complicated than that, that it is multidimensional, multifaceted, and hard. This is not a quick fix, simple solution. As we look at our second consideration here in verses 6 to 15, that we see new challenges emerge from even more anger. Nehemiah has responded in a good and godly and God-centered way, and the problem hasn't gone away. So at a minimum, I want you to see that even if you respond in a good and godly way to anger in your life, it doesn't mean the problem is going to go away. Some things will actually get better. In verses 6 through 9, we see that the work progresses. The wall is actually half built up now, but challenges follow. More groups than just Sambalat and Tobiah to buy up, get angry, and they start opposing the rebuilding. It says now Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites get involved. So what that's trying to paint a picture for us, if we don't know the geography well, and admittedly, when I was researching it, I didn't know the geography well, but naming all these different groups together shows us a city surrounded. It's meant to represent people groups to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. So all of a sudden, the city is surrounded by people who are not happy about what's going on in the city, who are actually very angry and we just talked about last week in chapter 3 how the people had actually surrounded the city, that they were working side by side on the wall to rebuild it. And now all of a sudden, these people that had, that had come together to do something together find themselves surrounded. 
And that's a bit of a sinking feeling when you find yourself feeling surrounded, threatened in this way. I don't know if you felt that way in your life, that you feel like the problems are just piling up, that I've got financial problems, I've got relational problems, I've got job problems, I've got, I've got all sorts of problems, health problems, they're just piling up and you feel surrounded. It's very easy, as the people do in this passage. And again, this is why Scripture is so real. It's not covering it up and it's not saying, again, the people were like, yes, too blessed to be stressed. We got our anger out. The Lord is with us. It is, they start to sink. We're dynamic people. We're not always going to respond in a healthy way. Because to some extent, despite starting to prepare for the threat, which they do in verse 9, the people actually do start to sink under this new threat in verses 10 to 12. They begin to doubt, so much so that the text is basically saying in verse 10 that, that everyone everywhere, that's what they're trying to get at, everyone everywhere is saying all the time, we can't do this, we're going to fail. That's what it means, they say it 10 times. It's like everyone is saying this all the time, we can't do this. And at the same time, they're not just feeling like, hey, we can't actually do this. Their enemies are taking advantage of the moment and ramping up their threats and saying, you won't just fail, we'll kill you. It's not just that you're unable and weak on the inside, we're going to put you away. Things are unquestionably getting worse. And sometimes we need to see that the opposition to rebuilding in our lives and even its impact on us, what it does to our hearts and our feelings and our actions is going to get worse before it gets better. Things may get worse at CTK before they get better. They may get worse in your Christian life before they get better. People may challenge you, may challenge us before we've even gotten very far into some of these things that we just talked about, about setting healthy boundaries again, about coming back to community, before we've gotten very far into learning how to say yes and no to the things that would lovingly be a, a call for us from God to come back into, before we've settled into serving each other, things may get worse before they get better. And that can feel really, really discouraging, stressful, because we're, we're just getting started. We feel like we're just starting to get things moving, get some momentum, but that stress, that fear, though it's natural, does not get to tell us what we do next. It doesn't mean that we should quit, as some people suggest in verse 12. It just means that we need to respond appropriately and return to the vision. Now, that's what Nehemiah does in this passage, what he calls the peoples to. Verse 13, and later in the passage as well, he responds appropriately. He puts better defenses in place to guard the rebuilding. He adds more support for the work. He brings in more people from the surrounding area. The people that have actually come in saying, hey, we don't think you can do this. He said, great, you're going to guard the wall. Right? He is expanding the pool of people that are coming to help. And he doesn't just respond appropriately in that way. He turns them back to the vision for why they are doing any of that. Verse 14, he says, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Nehemiah is saying, Who started this? Was it us? Was it just us? Remember the one who stands with you 
in these things. He reminds them not just of the one who stands with them, but why they're standing on top of that. Who are they fighting for? He says to to fight for particular people, to fight for family, for friends, for loved ones, people with a name, with history, with relationship, to fight for concrete people, to be a whole people again, to be a place where God could be met with and known personally, to be reconstituted as a, as a whole integral people again. Likewise, when our rebuilding is threatened in new ways, in surprising ways, when it feels like we've just gotten started here, we need to respond appropriately and return to the vision. We need to do what Nehemiah does, whether that's just personally or as a group. We need to add others in. We need to add more support around us. We need to share the challenges that we are facing with other people to stay with a greater threat and greater challenges to your personal, communal, spiritual life. And to not address that is to stand and to be ready to lose. We need to respond by taking those steps of vulnerability and courage because we have a God who stands with us that lets us be vulnerable, that gives us courage to say, this is where I'm struggling right now. This is where I need help. And I'm not asking you to do that with everybody, to do that wisely with one or two people that you trust even, or do that with another group of folks that you trust, but we have to widen the circle when the problem gets bigger. We need to do that here. And we need to return to the vision to remember who we are fighting for. Why are we here at all? Why are we in Cambridge? Why are we in Boston? Why are we in America at all? What do we want to see happen? What change has happened in our lives because of having God at the center of our universe? What change do we want to see in the lives of others around us? Remember who started this. Who stands with us in these things that we are trying to do? Is God still in charge? He is. Is this still his work and not just our work? It is. Is he still the Lord, great and awesome? He is. We might not feel able or worthy, but is he worthy? Is he able? He is. We may not like ourselves, but does he still love you? He does. Is he still at work in all these things now, whether you think he can or whether you think he can't? He is. He is the one who stands and makes us stand. It was never going to be as they were afraid in chapter 4 that it's just us and we can't do it. And the reality is, yes. If it is just us, that sinking feeling that you have is right. But the gospel says, yes and. That's not where it stops. It's yes, it's a sinking feeling with just you alone. But it's not just you alone. It's God, three in one, standing around you holding you up to do the things that he invites you to be a part of. Come back this morning. Come back in the months to come to the vision of who God is, to the power that actually stands behind us as we do all these things that, yes, on our own, we cannot, we will not do. He is worthy to carry it all. He is still carrying it all. 
So when more opposition comes, these are the things that I want to call us, that I want you to help me remember to do, to respond appropriately and to return back to the vision. But the realities of verses 16 to 23 show us that even when we do these things, life still not may go the way we expect. The Christian life is not a vending machine. It is not a dollar in and you press B5 and the Twix comes out. Or if it goes halfway, you knock the vending machine until it comes, right? Christianity is not that way. It is not a, I put my devotion in and God just dispenses the blessings out. God is still the one who is moving through all these things and working through all these things, as Paul would later say, for the good of those who love him. That even in the difficult things, God is working in this. And that's what we start to see in this new normal in our final consideration of verses 16 to 23. First, I just want to say that it might not look like what we expect life to be like if we have returned to the vision, if we have widened the circle. It's not going to bounce back necessarily to the way things were. And we see that here in that, that first of all, the enemies, the, the threat, the opponents that are in the life of the people that may be in our lives are not destroyed. That God doesn't answer the angry prayer of Nehemiah. He doesn't say, Nehemiah, you are wrong to feel that way, but he doesn't respond in the way that Nehemiah wants him to respond. They are not exiled as Nehemiah prays for them to be. There's actually no sign in the text that the people go away at all. The sign, if anything, is that they are still there and could come at any time because the people are to be ready round the clock, so much so that they never even take off their clothes. They sleep in readiness to fight at any moment. All they seem called to now is a readiness to defend. That's what we see in verses 16 and 17 and following. The call was not to destroy these people. It wasn't to go out and wage a war. It wasn't to say, hey, wipe them out before they can wipe you out. God would not be relating to the nations that way now. There had been times when God had moved and called his people to move in that way. And it wouldn't be surprising for Nehemiah to call into that, but God is showing Nehemiah just a slight vista of something new that's going to come. That he is not going to keep moving in that way. The call of the people of Judah at this time was to rebuild the walls of the city, not so that they could fight and destroy anyone that would come against them. Our call to rebuild as Christian individuals and as a community is not just so that we might be able to fight and take the culture war to anyone that would come against us, but it was because, and the same is true for us, a new normal was coming where enemies are no longer destroyed, but rather prayerfully changed. The new normal that was coming in the rebuilding of God's people was for God's people to draw the nations, the very people that were threatening to kill them, in. To, to be friends. To know God as they know God. Not to destroy them. If you have been on social media at all, if you have been reading the news, watching the news at all, you know that this is antithetical to the moment we are in in our culture. And I am not saying that there aren't things that have been deeply wrong that have gone on that need to be addressed and fixed and not done again, 
But the call of Scripture is not that we wipe out those that have done those things, even if we have to wisely change, perhaps, how we engage with others, but that we hope for change. And this is actually really important and good news because it means that there is actually hope for angry people too. There's hope for people who have become consumed by one thing, consumed by anger, consumed by an identity that is not revolving around God as the source of flourishing. There is hope for you and I when our hearts wander into being consumed by something that cannot do what God can do for us. There is hope that God is rebuilding things, not to break you down, but to bring you in, to bring you home. This means that the new normal that they lived in, that we live in too, is that opposition comes from those who we hope might one day still believe. Even for people with unhealthy anger. That God can change them, can change me, can change you too, can make us worthy, can make us able, even though on our own we can't. The unexpected part of the new normal of the Christian life is that opponents of the gospel, opponents of our spiritual rebuilding, angry people are not destroyed, they are spared. The door is held open to them, as we said, albeit wisely, but the door is held open nonetheless in our hearts. Even if we have to create some healthy boundaries to say, you can't treat me that way, that in my heart, the door is still open that someday you might treat me in a way that is good. We don't wall them off because opponents may not always be opponents in the gospel. This is what happened with us and God. We were his enemies. That's what Paul says. We were captives to unhealthy anger. And in that condition, not when we got ourselves right, not when we put that aside, when we were enemies, Christ loved us, made us friends, made us worthy. And that was a very costly thing to do for God. Conversion from enemy to a friend comes at a price. It's going to be a costly thing for us to endure. Just look at them in this passage. Their lives are changed. They are not living in comfort. They're not changing their clothes. They're working on rebuilding something with one hand and holding a weapon in the other because it's a legitimate fear that someone might attack them at any moment. Their lives have been changed by keeping the door open and not by closing it. In the gospel, we are actually called to do the same, to have our lives changed. The paradigm of the Christian life is to be a living sacrifice, to be those who are giving themselves over time and time again to others so that those who are enemies might be made friends. To do that, yes, wisely, being honest about what's wrong, but to do it nonetheless. 
because that is exactly what Christ has done for us. He gave up his life, his comfort, to welcome those in who were still his enemies and not yet his friends. That's what the gospel tells us, that Christ welcomed us in when we were enemies and not friends. He did that discomfort, that dying, that suffering when we were enemies and not friends. He loved you when we were enemies and not friends. He loved you when you were consumed by anger and a mess, when you were Sambalat and Tobiah and everyone else. He loved you then. That's what the gospel holds out to you. So how could he not love you still today? Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after. While we were still angry at God even. He left himself open to those who didn't yet love him. He didn't cut them off. Instead, he let himself be cut off at the cross. He let himself be surrounded on all sides as Israel was surrounded. He let himself be cursed and mocked. He let himself not be spared but taken down so that his enemies might be spared. He let his life be changed so that they might be changed. That's what we are called to as well, to be like the one who has given us new life, to, to enter into this new normal of rebuilding in the Christian life, to, yes, put up healthy boundaries, to respond appropriately, but to hold the gates of our hearts open nonetheless because Christ has held them open forever for us. So to come to a close here, how do we do that more concretely? I want to give you two things to find and to bring, to try to put this in practice in our lives a little more this week. First, I would, I would ask you to find your place in this story. Are you an opponent of God or his people? Are you someone who is, who is deeply angry at God? Hear the invitation this morning that he has held the door open to you while you are angry that you might become a friend. You may have come in as an opponent of God in your heart this morning. You don't have to leave that way. You don't have to stay like Sambalat and have your world revolve around this to be the character who just is anger. Christ has made a way that doesn't depend on your strength, but it depends on him, on him being worthy to make you worthy to make you whole. And if God has already done that in your life, if he has already made you his friend from being an enemy, then I encourage you to bring in two ways, to bring your anger to God this week. Don't be mastered by the pain and the threats that you face. Take them to your master in prayer. Be as angry as you want to be in your prayers. If you have to shout your prayers into a pillow because you were so angry, do that. Let your anger go somewhere that it can actually be taken care of. Let him carry it so you can be angry and free, trusting that he is in control. 
and also bring, bring more people to support you. Whether that's in your anger and the anger of others and the, in the frustrations that you're facing and the discouragements that you're facing about the own ways that you're, you're trying to rebuild, the sins that you're trying to get past that you just can't get past, that you can't make any progress in, widen the circle. If the defenses you had so far are not working, widen the circle. We can't face these things alone. Be there for one another. That's a huge part of why we need to return to community, to service as a church, as a people group, so that we are ready for one another when threats and obstacles come in. Because on our own, we will not make it. We need to come back to these things, yes, for the vision and for the hope, but also for one another, that we might actually make it through this thing. Because it is going to be hard. And yet we still want to see opponents of the gospel become friends. And that is our hope that in Christ that is exactly what he does. And that if he has held the doors open that we can still walk through and others can still walk through with us. We can still be rebuilt. Would you pray with me? I'm going to leave you a little space to respond yourself in silent prayer to God about these things. Maybe thanking him for for being able to face the threats in your life, to, to being someone that you can talk to these things about, or maybe confess the ways that you have let anger consume you, control you, the way you've let fear consume you or control you, to, to ask God to help you even to prepare a price to welcome others in as he's welcomed you. Let's pray for a few moments. God, help us to bring the fullness of our hearts to you that you might carry that weight for us. Hear these prayers now and answer by your grace. In your name we pray, amen.